together, please, to Acts chapter 4. We're continuing our verse-by-verse teaching through Luke's book, which recorded the early days of the church. We are finding some incredible things as we are working through some things which are common to our experience and some things which are not. The things which are common to our experience comfort us and encourage us because we understand that God has been working among his people commonly for a long, long time now. The things that are a bit less common to our experience, we are working by faith to interpret for our time and the lessons that are to be learned for us. We took a couple of weeks, the past two weeks, to celebrate the Protestant Reformation. So we have not been in Acts for a couple of weeks, but now we come back to it to lay a little bit of groundwork. We are still in the very early days after Jesus has ascended back to heaven. He has sent the Holy Spirit in fullness to indwell his people. Sermons have begun to be preached. Converts are coming into the church by the droves. The apostles are gaining not only respect among those they are leading, but they are beginning to develop some notoriety in the city of Jerusalem, and not all of it is welcomed. In chapter 3, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray and encountered a lame man. This was the last chapter we covered together. And in this chapter, we find the lame man who, as we will learn, was about 40 years old, had been lame from birth, begging as he did seemingly every day for someone to give him a little bit of money or a little bit of food to sustain him for another day. He could not work. He was helpless. And he had been helpless so long, he was deeply helpless. Seemingly, there was no glimmer of hope left. He was going through the motions. He was a bit of a survival zombie. And so he asks Peter and John for a bit of money. Peter looks at him and says, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up walk. Now this is one of those experiences which is not common to us. In these early days of the church, Jesus is continuing to work from heaven through his apostles to give testimony to who he is, to draw attention to the good news that will be preached by the apostles, to show that he, even from heaven, is reversing all the effects of the curse even sickness, even disease. The good news of Jesus is that he is making all things new from the inside out. This man seemingly was changed from the outside in, in his case. And of course, as we come into chapter 4, we will learn that news of this spreads. How could it not? As we begin in just a moment to read chapter 4, I do want to set the scene a little bit for what Jerusalem is like in the day. It's a highly religious city. 
though not central in the geography of Jerusalem, the temple is at the high point of Jerusalem. And at this high point, people could see God and his presence with the people. The temple was meant to be a house for the Lord in the presence of the people. It was a highly religious city. Lots of religious leaders. They had just come through Passover and Pentecost, another Jewish feast. Their calendar revolved around religious things. A little bit different than ours today. For even our religious holidays, we have secularized in so many ways. But for the Jewish people, religion was in front of them all the time. And religion most recently had been at a fever pitch for a rabbi who some believed to be the Messiah had been crucified recently. And the memories of this would have been fresh on the minds of all those in the city. And despite the religious fervor of the city, despite how deeply religious it was, in so many ways, these people were, for the most part, dead. What Peter and John had done in the name of Jesus to this lame man was to speak life into this dead place. If you're a sci-fi fan in some way or another, you've seen countless movies when apocalyptic zombie outbreaks take place and a few faithful people who are able to hide out and fight for their lives not only seek survival, but in some of these films, try to find antidotes to the zombie apocalyptic source, and if they can just apply it, they can turn things around. In some ways, that's what Jerusalem was like. Predominantly, the vast majority of these people walking around in the walls of this ancient holy city were like the walking dead. They, they were helpless and hopeless. But among a band of relatively few, uneducated people, not very noteworthy people, the antidote had been given. And to this man, and as we will find now in chapter 4, the antidote of the gospel of Jesus, the cursor verse, or the one who can bring life out of death, is applied. So let's read together the entirety of Acts chapter 4. This is God's word. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, 
whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak to your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let's examine this passage a bit and see how it applies to our setting today and to our lives. First of all, we find that the gospel changes what we fear. 
Verses 1 through 31 teach us that the gospel changes what we fear. Now, specifically in this context, this has to do with the worship of God and the proclamation of the good news of God. I will say at the outset that there is a principle here, before we get back into the immediate context, there is a principle here that because of the gospel, the fact that before the foundation of the world, God set his affections upon his people, he gave them to his son and they would certainly be saved, and Jesus came to die for them, to atone for their sins, to make them his own, and will one day return in his second coming, his second advent, and make all things new. This is the primary thread of all of human history. It is the hope of redemption. And we who gather together today as the people of God can rest in that. And because God is sovereign in all the movements of all of time, you need not fear. And nothing is out of bounds. You don't have to fear today. You don't have to fear men or women. You don't have to fear poverty. You don't have to fear sickness. You don't have to fear being wrong. You don't have to fear being exposed. You don't have to fear what's coming in around the corner because you don't see it. My friends, if the gospel is true, we don't have to be afraid. Primarily, we don't have to be fearful of condemnation. This is why John says in his first epistle that those who fear are not made perfect in love. So I say to you today, the only antidote to your fear is the promise of the gospel, that God is for you in Christ. If that were not true, we should be petrified of everything. Things that we can see and things that we can't. The movements of the day and things that creep at night. But as a principle, because the gospel is true, we don't have to be afraid. But specifically in this context, what I mean about not being fearful, that the gospel allows us to live without fear, has to do with living out our faith. Standing for Jesus. Being Christian in a non-Christian society. Being holy in an unholy world. Proclaiming that Jesus is the one and only path to life in a pluralistic society that doesn't buy that. The gospel allows us to live without fear and living out our faith. In a context, perhaps, where those of faith are accepted, even somehow respected a bit. In our day and age, we, we still have that at least a little bit. Will it always be that way? I don't know. When I hang out with my unbelieving friends in the community, I'm not made fun of for being a Christian. I'm pretty honest with what I believe. They know. Will it always be like that? Will our culture grow 
increasingly hostile to Christianity. From a more macro level, I think we feel it. There are trends, winds of change in government, which might lead us to believe that. Certainly the predominant nature of most media, and I'm not giving away in any sense how I lean politically, but by and large, media would lead us to believe that we're a bunch of antiquated quacks, or worse, that we are haters and bigots. Will the trend get worse? Will the winds of change blow more fiercely? Will there come a day when we will not be accepted in any sense? That could be. So whether on a macro level there is hostility or it extends down to the micro level of our individual neighborhoods, we have at times tasted what it feels like to live in opposition to a secular evil world, and I suspect that it will get worse in time. And though the gospel holds out to us the general principle, the general promise that we don't have to fear anything, primarily what Luke is recording for us here in this text is that we don't have to fear living out our faith publicly. Peter and John were not afraid. Now, this had not always been the case, right? When Jesus was arrested prior to his crucifixion, they were afraid. They ran away and abandoned him. Peter famously, tragically denied the Lord Jesus three times. But through the restoration that came through Jesus' forgiveness and through, of course, Pentecost, that the second person of the Trinity had sent the third person of the Trinity to indwell them. The Holy Spirit had indwelt these men and women now. Everything was different. They had gone from cowering in the shadows self-protecting to living out their faith boldly and openly even in the center of the city so to speak speaking in the name of Jesus doing very public things Peter and John knew this and while their healing of this man was genuine Jesus had a greater purpose there was no mistake that they ran into this man at this time and of course the news spread and so basically, everybody who was anybody came after them. Priests, leaders of the temple, one of the major religious sects, the Sadducees. They were particularly annoyed because they didn't believe in resurrection. And this was one of the primary things that the apostles are preaching because it's part and parcel of the gospel. It was toward the end of the day after they were arrested and then they were put in custody. The striking thing about this in verse 4 is that perhaps 5,000 people were converted on this very day. Scholars differ as to whether or not this is the full count of the entire church in Jerusalem at the time, or if these are 5,000 new converts. Scholars tend to lean toward the latter, that 5,000 new converts, and perhaps more than that, because Luke specifies that these are men. If entire households were converted, wives and children, you could have upward of 20 plus thousand people added to the church in a day. So what would it be like to be Peter and John in prison this night? On the one hand, you've just preached one of the most successful evangelistic sermons ever. 
and God has moved. Those of us who've been Christians a long time perhaps remember what it was like to have traditional altar calls and occasionally, not very often, but occasionally people would come down to the altar at the end of a service and they would confess that they had come to faith in Jesus during that preaching time. And it was amazing because it didn't happen very often. But what if five plus thousand people were converted through your open air preaching? They had to have been astounded. They had to have been hopeful. They had to have believed that in light of their boldness granted to them by God, that Jesus kept his promises. All they had to do was open up their mouths and speak. And guess what? Jesus came through. They lived by faith and Jesus came through. And yet on the other hand, they didn't know what would happen. Because what happened last time one of their company was arrested? Crucifixion. So on the one hand, they had to have been completely excited out of their minds that such success came to them. And yet, on the other hand, they had to have been really scared that perhaps they were about to be beaten and even nailed to a cross. So the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes come. Annas was the leader. He wasn't the high priest at this time. Caiaphas was. We know this from the accounts in the gospel. He was the high priest that led to the condemnation of Jesus. Annas had been high priest prior to this and was seen as the respected leader. So he comes along with these others, and they question the apostles, Peter and John specifically. Tradition tells us that when they brought them into the council, they would have been arranged in kind of a semicircle, and they would have put Peter and John in the middle. Peter and John were not jurists. They were not used to arguing cases. They were not religious professionals. They had not grown up at the feet of great rabbis. They were not well respected. They were not well known. But they had been with Jesus. And arrayed against them in a hostile semicircle, you find all these religious leaders who should have known better questioning them. And so they ask them, in what name do you do this? And what they're really saying is, we haven't given you permission to do this. We control everything. Everything goes through us. We have not given you permission. So Peter then says in verse 8, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, I guess we know how Peter and John came out after their night in prison. They had to have had talks, right? Maybe went back and forth a little bit. Well, let, let's just keep it kind of quiet. Let's say that God did a miraculous thing. In fact, maybe we can even get to the crippled man and, and get him to play along with us a little bit. And then if we can just keep it quiet, we can go back to our band of believers and we'll keep doing this, but we'll keep it under wraps a little bit more. 
that's not what happened. They came out guns blazing. They were believing that Jesus Christ, who died and who had come back to life and had sent them his spirit and had brought thousands of people to himself at Pentecost and who had healed this man, they believed that even if they had to forfeit their lives in the most treacherous, unspeakable way possible, they could not help but speak the truth. They were willing, despite the costs, to live out their faith publicly. And notice, they speak words of indictment here. They don't speak generally. They speak to these leaders. And as we've already said, these leaders were responsible specifically for the crucifixion of Jesus and had sought, as we know, to cover it up when the resurrection empty tomb was clear. They speak words of indictment, and yet these are words of hope as well, for in verse 12, they clarify that salvation is possible, but only through Jesus. The gospel changes what we fear. If we're being honest, though there might be a few exceptions among us today, we really struggle with this. We struggle with being truly Christian in a world which is against us. We struggle even more specifically with speaking the gospel this clearly. I suspect that very few times in our lives, and probably not recently, have we been this clear with the gospel. Why? Well, we think it's the wrong approach. We think that if we come at it this bluntly, that will turn people off and we'll have no chance to become their friends and explain it to them over time. That's one reason. We also fear the repercussions. It's hard to live next to somebody that you've spoken the gospel to this clearly and know that after you've done it, you still have to live next to them for perhaps years. It's hard to do this with people you work with for you fear the repercussions. You fear sometimes even for your employment. It's hard to do this with your family members who are unbelievers for you've got to do holidays with them. And that's upon us, right? It is unlikely that any of us will ever be brought in front of Congress. That's probably our nearest parallel to this. And have the chance to speak like this. In fact, I wonder if we might be more bold in that setting. I think if we're being honest, it's harder in our everyday setting. I think that's where it's really hard. I think that we can go into cold sweats in thinking about sharing the entirety of the gospel with a neighbor. The entirety of the gospel with a lost mom or dad or brother or cousin. 
But the principle holds true. If the gospel is true, that God in his great mercy has sent his son who died to atone for our sins and was raised in victorious power and offers life and righteousness to all who will believe, if that's true, then we must stop living in fear and we must proclaim with humble boldness. In verse 13, after seeing their boldness, they make them leave for a little while so they can confer together. The kicker of all this is that here's this guy who was lame, and everybody knew it. He was publicly lame. He begged at the beautiful gate of the temple on a daily basis. No one could mistake it. This was not his doppelganger. This was not his twin. This was the lame guy. But now he's well. And so they say to one another, verses 15 and 16, What shall we do? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Think about how perniciously evil this was. They had no other explanation for what had happened to this guy. Nobody in their company could do it. But they believed their own lies. And here in a subtle way, we get a little bit of a window into the problem of self-righteousness. That we can explain away our own evil deeds and the good deeds of others because it's an indictment upon us. What did Annas and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all the leaders of the synagogues and temple and the Sadducees, what did they want most of all? They wanted what would accrue to them if they maintained their position. Esteem, wealth, to be followed. And because they were genuinely religious, even though they were misguided, they wanted to be able to save themselves, to contribute to their own salvation. And, and I have to say to you that that is a very intoxicating elixir. The idea that we can do something to contribute to our salvation, that we're not that bad, and in fact, compared to other people, we're quite good. That's intoxicating. And these leaders were drunk on that. So despite the obvious evidence that they could not explain away, they called the apostles back to them and charged them, verse 18, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What is Peter and John's response? Verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You might have thought at this point, after being put once again in like a holding room while the council conferred that maybe they would grown a little bit more cowardly or gotten cold feet. But they do it again. They speak again words of boldness. And then they're further threatened, verse 21, and driven out. 
but the council at this point doesn't know what to do because the people are praising God, which should be the result of Jesus showing up, right? When Jesus shows up and does his work, in this case, through his apostles, what happens? God is glorified. When the gospel is spread and people embrace it, God is glorified. So what do they do? They go back to their friends. I love how Luke puts that. It could have been to the band of apostles, or it could have been the larger church. They go back to be with their people, however many there were, and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then look what they do. They pray. Notice what they say first. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father, our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So they're quoting from the Old Testament. We find in verse 24, perhaps a reference to Isaiah 37, which the prophet says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kings of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. These people were not just cocky upstarts. They were not trying to start a revolution. What were they? They were people who feared God. And this allowed them to not fear man. Most of us do, right? Most of us struggle with fearing men. When I say that, I suspect that some faces just blazed across your mind. It might be your mom, which is odd for an adult to admit, right? It might be your dad, it might be a friend, co-worker. But we fear people. And this is why the apostles begin their prayer like this. We fear you, God. Which explains why they were able to be so bold in the council. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Psalm 2. The apostles reference in their prayer what David says, and this comes from Psalm 2. It's really a fascinating psalm <clears throat> in a lot of ways, and we will not explain it in fullness today, but I do want to draw out a couple of things to your attention. David, in this context, is probably speaking about himself in some senses. Why do people stand in opposition to him? Because he's God's chosen leader. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, David faced opposition all the time as a leader. We know this from the history of his reign. How did David take confidence in the midst of this opposition? He feared God. He who sits in the heavens, verse 4, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David speaking about himself, but also prophetically. 
I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of, me, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Though David spoke about himself, God's favor upon him, how God would bless him despite the opposition, he spoke prophetically about a coming king, a greater son. The apostles picked that up in Acts chapter 4 and know it applied to Jesus. Jesus is Savior and Jesus is King. And so they weren't afraid of Annas and they weren't afraid of Caiaphas and they weren't afraid of the council because they served a God who had saved them and they feared him. Now notice what else they say in verse 27 of Acts chapter 4. Their prayer continues. For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So whose idea was it that Jesus died? Was it Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Gentiles and the people of Israel? According to this text, the answer is yes. Was it God's plan as well? And the answer is yes. This is one of the clearest texts in all of the Holy Scriptures which holds together intention God's sovereign purposes and human agency. In other words, God will determine everything that will come to pass. The Old Testament teaches us that God even controls the casting of the dice. How much more did God control the most important thing that ever happened? That the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and died in our place. He planned that. This was the promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. It was the means whereby the promise of redemption could come to place. God had planned this and it had taken place and nothing could have stopped it. Was Herod responsible? Pontius Pilate, Jewish leaders, Roman soldiers, Judas, were they responsible? Absolutely. They made a sinful, horrific choice. But do you realize that this text tells us that the worst thing that has ever taken place, the murder of the Son of God, the worst thing that humanity has ever done, worse than rape, worse than thievery, worse than war, this is the worst thing humans have ever wrought. But do you also realize it's the best thing, the most gracious thing, the most kind thing that has ever happened? Do you realize that? Through all the annals of human history and all the awful things we've done, awful, awful things we've done, the worst thing that the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve have done is to murder the Son of God. And yet, through this, God gave us his most clear gift of grace. We'll talk more about this in just a bit, but this means 
from a principial point of view, there's a principle we can draw from this. That even when we see the most tragic things happening before our eyes, God is still working. And this means that God even uses evil to praise himself. I want to say that again. God even uses evil to praise himself. Nothing can overcome the purposes of God. And through the most evil thing that has ever happened, what has happened to us? Well, we sit here 2,000 years later and we enjoy the benefits of the gospel. And then what's their prayer? Verse 29, In light of your sovereignty over all things, even the worst of things, we take great confidence, verse 29, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then what happens? Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You notice they don't ask for protection. I don't think it's wrong to ask for protection. Later on, there's a point where Peter is imprisoned and he is released and as he comes back to be with the church, he finds that they've all been praying for him. So it's not wrong to pray for protection and release. But that's not included here in the prayer. What do they pray for? Continued boldness. So here's the idea. God, you're sovereign over all things. And we know that from your word. You've proven that through the history of your people. But guess what? We've seen it. We've seen you use the most evil thing that has ever happened to bring yourself glory and to bring salvation to lost, rebellious sinners. In light of that, please continue to make us bold. And guess what? There wasn't even a delay. God answered that right away. I will say to you this, and I think I can say to you this without any hesitation. God will answer this prayer. For God cares more about his glory and God cares more about the spread of the gospel of his son than you ever will. So if you're sitting here today and you think to yourself, I can never be like Peter and John. I can never be this bold with the gospel. That's for the religious professionals. That's why we have elders. That's why we pay you, Lee. You're missing the point. Who were these people, verse 13? They were uneducated common men. They weren't special you and they were like me but they were overwhelmed with two central facts that God was sovereign over all things and they should fear him above all else fact number one and fact number two because Jesus is the only under name given under heaven whereby we may be saved he's people's only hope he was their only hope he had rescued them they had not sought for him. He had sought them. And because they were overwhelmed with the sovereign power of God and because they were overwhelmed with the notion that Jesus was the only means of salvation, they spoke with boldness. And they prayed for more, and God answered the prayer. As we close today, I'm going to pray something similar to this. Will the Holy Spirit come down and shake this place? He could. He'd turn us all into charismatics in a moment, I suppose. That'd be a good thing, I think. I think this is more of a day-by-day -day thing. We'll talk about this at the end. But I think this is more of a day-by-day -day thing, however. I don't
don't suspect that the spirit is going to, in some sort of microcosmic earthquake kind of effect, shake a place like this. Though he could. But he's got to shake us. He's got to shake us out of our fear. He's got to shake us out of our myopic look at the world. And, and as I'm saying these things, I'm preaching to myself probably more than I'm preaching to you because I'm fearful too. But if God really is sovereign over all things and Jesus really is the only means of salvation, we've got to speak with boldness, trusting that God will answer the prayer for boldness. He will not leave us to ourselves. I will say to you that God will answer that prayer. We've just got to pray it. <clears throat> Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. We are living for a world that is coming. We're living for riches which cannot be taken away. We're living for a king that cannot be thwarted. We're living for a gospel that is universally true. Let us be bold and trust him. The gospel changes what we fear, verses 1 through 31, and the gospel changes what we treasure, verses 32 through 37. What happens to all these people in this church, these thousands of people now? full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, verse 32. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace came upon them all. They just kept preaching. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is foreshadowing what we'll study next week in Acts chapter 5. The gospel changes not only what we fear, but what we treasure. Is Luke encouraging some sort of proto communism here where nobody is wealthier than another and everybody is equal in wealth. I don't think that's what he's really encouraging. One of the tricks sometimes of interpreting Acts is that it's not completely normative for us. In other words, the application of verses 32 through 37 is not that we all go sell extra things we have and bring it to the elders and then we put it into a common fund and take care of everybody. It doesn't have to be apples to apples in every sense. And yet, in saying what I just did, we can excuse ourselves from being hoarders and being greedy. Here's what I mean. It may well be that the application for you is to go sell something. And I want that to rest on some of us today. Most of us, not all of us sitting here today, not everybody, but most of us have more than we is one of the unusual features of living in the suburbs of 2017 America. Speaking to a friend this week about how difficult it is for us as Christians who live in the suburbs and have a vital faith. Do you ever feel that? 
you ever feel like like your faith is being choked by your house and by your cars and by sports and by your jobs and by your clothes and by vacation and whatever else? I do. I'm responsible for that. Too often we just let life happen to us rather than by the proclamation and evidence of our faith determining how we will live it. And so I say to you on a very general level, don't just let life happen to you. You should, I should, we should lead our lives in such a way that the primary reality is not job or family, hear me, but Jesus. And I will tell you, once again, without any hesitation, that when Jesus is preeminent in your affections, when you love him the most, everything else will fall into place. Your job will be fine. Your family will be fine. It is difficult, as much as we say that we don't want to keep up with the Joneses, it is difficult to stop. Is there anything wrong with having more than another? Let's just be honest. Some here have less. Some here have more. The rest of us are somewhere in the middle. Is any one category, is any one slice of the pie, whether you have less or more or somewhere in the middle, is any one better or less than another? No. There's nothing wrong with having less. There's nothing wrong with having more. But for those who have more, and that is most of us in one way or another, because all of us have more than we need, are we leveraging our resources in such a way? And it might not just be money. It could be time. For if the suburban lifestyle chokes anything other than money, it's our time. But are we willing to leverage our resources, not just letting life happen to us, but us telling life how it's going to go because we treasure Jesus supremely above all other things? Will we leverage our resources of time and talent and treasure for the good of another? To encourage you, you have proven historically in this church that when one has a need, you take care of it. This is not a massive problem in this church. But our church is growing. There's more people with more needs. Seemingly, there's more children being born and more sick people. And it could be this means that you take a Monday afternoon and you make a meal and you take it to somebody who doesn't live around the corner from you. It may mean that you hear that someone has a need for a bill or without a job and you sacrifice more than the cost of a meal. It may mean that you budget to help telling your money how it will be used rather than just letting it flow and at the end of the month wondering where it all went. Living with purpose, living with determination, not just letting life happen to us, as I say, I think, for a third time, but living in light of the preeminence of Jesus for his glory in every way. The gospel changes what we fear and the gospel changes what we treasure. It should be that when people see us, they should ask, why are these people so bold about the faith? 
It should be that when people see us, they ask themselves, why are these people so generous with their money and their resources? And then we're able to answer the question for the reason of the hope that lies within us. But if we are leading cowardly lives, if we are leading hoarding lives, no one is going to ask that question. And so we all have changing to do. In our immediate context, our spheres of influence, the people that we encounter, and perhaps even as a church, finding better ways for us to collaboratively take the hope of Jesus to the communities around us. And the elders will be talking more about that and speaking to you about ways we can do that together. So I say to you very simply, once again, the gospel changes what we fear and the gospel changes what we treasure. What do we do with all this as we close? Well, first, we must prayerfully continuously walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, ready to speak the gospel to those we encounter. You can't do one of these, um, oh, I better get ready kind of things whenever people come in front of you. Now you can, and the Spirit will probably be faithful in that way. But wouldn't it be better if this was a normal posture? Where before you begin your day, and as you are entering into your day, and throughout your day, and at the end of your day, you're prayerfully, continuously, all the time, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, ready to speak the gospel to those we encounter. Why could Peter do this? What was Peter naturally? Peter naturally was a coward. He was you. He was me. What changed for him? He walked in the Spirit. We know later in life from Galatians that Peter didn't always do that. Paul at one point had to stand up to him because Peter got cowardly again. We suppose that Peter repented and picked up where he left off. And so I say to you, we must prayerfully, continuously walk in the power of the Spirit. That means you talk to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I'm on my way to work right now. You know that because you know all things. But um, I'm going to encounter someone today that I need to share the gospel with. Maybe somebody specific. Maybe his name's John. And I have been cowardly. I've invited him to lunch many times intending to do so, but I've stepped away from it because I'm afraid. Or a student, as you're going to school perhaps this week, you say to yourself as you ride the bus in, or mom and dad are dropping you off, God, God the Spirit, I want to live for the glory of Jesus. I want to have opportunities to proclaim to my classmates, even if it sounds odd, even if I look weird, that Jesus is the only hope of the world. You're going to have to help me. Maybe it won't happen today, but if it does, may I be ready. May I be bold. In 1 John 4, 4, the apostle says, Little children, that's all of us, you are from God, and I've overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Satan hates the spread of the gospel. He will do his dead-level best to thwart it. But he cannot box with the Holy Spirit. He is far too weak. The Holy Spirit is far too strong and will win any battle. He lives inside of you. You can trust him. Which is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean you quit your job and put on sackcloth and ashes and go to a closet somewhere. This means that as you live, you're praying all the time walking in the spirit secondly we must not lose heart but pray when trials arise 
Our Father is at work even in the face of tragedy or injustice. This means that over time, instinctively, reflexively, when even the worst things imaginable happen, like the death of their leader, the apostles learned that God even uses evil, the worst of evil, to praise himself. And so I say to you that when the worst things seem to be happening, look to him, trust him. Doesn't your experience tell you that? Doesn't the word tell us that? God brings good out of evil. And lastly, we must practice generosity, leveraging our resources to bless others. Take stock of what you have. Your money, assets, your gifts, your time. You may say, well, they're maxed. They're already spoken for. You're in charge of them. Change. Re-leverage them. Move them around. Sell some things. Get rid of some things. That, that might be stuff. It might be activities. But there's no way that we can be generous if we don't tell our resources where they're going to go. And too many of us, and I'll say it for a fourth time, are letting life happen to us and at a moment's glance, when we look at our resources of time and talent and treasure, we think there aren't any to spare. Perhaps one of the acts of repentance that you and I need to look at as we walk out of our time together today is to take deep stock of where our resources are and re-leverage them, change them. It will not rob your joy. I promise you, you will be happier. You will have deeper, more lasting joy that will last into eternity. And you will increase the joy of others. That's what happens when you leverage the resources that God has given you for others. This is why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians 9, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So we give to each other. One of the best ways to do is we give to our church. So we can give to missionaries and we can give to the poor. We can expand our reach here in this church. So I encourage you to think carefully about this. How will we tell our resources where they should go so that we can be a church that speaks of the gospel of Jesus here and abroad? I suspect that in light of this chapter, we all have a lot of changing to do. But take comfort. If the gospel is yours, if you have embraced Jesus by faith, you need not fear condemnation, and you need not fear being cast off. We repent openly, for God delights in forgiving. God delights in changing us. May we be a different people from having experienced this word together today.